0: So I will read for you today and preach for you today out of the book of Acts, chapter 9. Reading now for you, verses 1 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if it be found, <clears throat> so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And he said, "Who are you, Lord?" And he said, "I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do." The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and all those, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed. And entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. In taking food, he was strengthened. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of the conversion of Saul, chief persecutor of your people at that time. Potentially chief persecutor in many ways, but also the chief evangelist, maybe the best evangelist ever. Father, may it be that we would see this work that you're doing, that we would be in awe of your power over the heart of man, your power over the, for the proclamation of your son's name throughout the world. Help us to be in awe in praise of you and help us to humbly submit to rise to go and to be strengthened in obedience of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We now enter into one of the biggest transitions in the book of Acts because even though we got a little bit of an introduction of Saul during the time of Stephen, here is the fuller introduction of Saul is, and from this point on, we will see the ministry and the furthering of the acts of the apostles to be heavily involved with the ministry of Saul. Of course, we know, we know how this is going to go, we knew how it was going to go even back when there was the persecution and the martyring of Stephen, and here we get to go deep into the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Saul, Now, this particular story is a very popular story and a very common story that many of us know about. In fact, even when I was very young, I would hear about the the story of Paul in the road to Damascus. And a lot of people would use this story and actually associate with this story in some way by understanding their own conversion. Now, I grew up in a Christian church culture that was... Very evangelistic and very revivalistic, and it was very encouraging for us to hear stories about people who had a transition of conversion in their life, and many times they would connect with the story of Paul and how they very much had a Damascus Road experience. In fact, often throughout the furthering of my maturity in the faith, that, there has, that has been kind of a thematic uh, term or phrase of when someone gets converted or Damascus Road experience versus maybe a, a calmer transition into conversion or maybe a where a child has grown up in the home and has always been seen as a covenant child and and maybe maturing incrementally throughout their life and how that would contrast someone having a Damascus Road experience and so it's not a a story that is unheard of, like maybe some stories or maybe people are unfamiliar with. People are very familiar with this particular story. But I believe, maybe more so in the culture in which we live with, people associate with this story more based upon the comparisons or contrast to their own personal coming to faith. And because of that... They may be missing out, just like a lot of things in the book of Acts that I've already introduced and and, and spoken about in other sermons, missing out on the historical significance of what is occurring in Paul, but not just the historical significance, but the mighty significance of what God is doing amongst his people. And so today I want us to think about how you are not like Paul, all right, which is Probably not something that we hear about as much when this particular narrative is being explained. So I want to talk about how you are not like Paul, but at the same time, since this is still one of the beginnings and the foundations of the building of the church, I do want us to think about how we are like Paul or how we are in this story in some way. Because I do believe that there are things going on here in this particular narrative that can be applied in our own lives, not to just our wonder and amazement of what God has done historically in His church, but there are principles and things concerning the gospel that are occurring among Saul and Ananias here that I think are very applicable to our understanding. It's the same gospel, it's the same point of the gospel, and it's the same Holy Spirit that filled. Saul, that fills his people to this day. Now, again, I don't know, know, I'm assuming that everyone is mostly reading out of the ESV, but some of you may have been reading out of the KJV or another part, and you might think he's skipping parts again. And it's the same scenario that we had last week. There are portions in this particular narrative that are not um, referenced in the ESV, Like it might be in some of the English translations that are based upon the majority text. On the critical text, the older available transcripts of the scripture, the account of kicking against the goads is not in those, or not in that particular passage. And also the statement where it says, when Paul responds, What shall I do? is not in that. Now in Acts 22, and in Acts 26, in their critical text, those statements are there. So it makes sense that as the scribes were writing out the scriptures, they weren't adding any particular component to the Word of God, but they were adding it to the placement of where it was in the narrative. And so the ESV, to try to be more pure to the older texts they have omitted that in there trying to adhere primarily to the older text so if you saw that in any of your translations that is why but it's not to say that it's not there in the actual narrative itself so it, again it's not something that you should be alarmed about um, but that might be something that you might come across interestingly enough one of the primary commentaries that i was using for preparing this did have it in there, and it was very helpful to see that. And I failed to put in the order of worship the reference passages of Acts 22, verses 3 through 16, and also Acts 26, verse 4 through 18, that I encourage you to go and read as we consider this passage. Don't read it right now, (laughs) but later on. um, Read those particular accounts. And there are unique differences in those particular accounts. Again, not contrasting what occurred in this particular account. But Luke is very clearly showing us as things are progressing through the overall story of the book of Acts. You can see different things that are being highlighted for the point of telling the story. So first of all, on how you are not like Saul. Well, obviously you're not Saul, but Saul has a very unique place, a very extremely and special place in the furthering of the new covenant because he was namely an apostle. Now, the things that I've mentioned there about the different accounts of this particular scene being repeated through the book of Acts is likely one of the, 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 one of the reasons why this is repeated multiple times is that Luke is wanting to assure us and remind us that Saul is an apostle. Does anybody know what are, what, what are the necessary components of being an apostle for Jesus Christ? Versus just being a regular disciple. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. They have to, have seen. to have seen Jesus. And what else? There were a lot of people who saw Jesus, but they were not apostles. So that wasn't the only thing, but it is a necessary component. So it has, that is one combined with other things. What else is a requirement of being an apostle? Commissioned by Jesus? You had to be commissioned by Jesus in some way, to be an apostle for his name. Are there any apostles today? We've we've gone over this before, but just as a reminder. No. Now you might say, wait a minute. I saw a guy on TV, or I heard on the radio, or I saw on the internet that there was this guy, apostle so-and-so, or there was this gal, apostle so-and-so. Well, that's not the case because that is a closed season in our history. This was a special time, and that's why it's important for us to remember that Jesus, by his command and by his will, had a particular purpose for Saul, that everything about Saul in his life, including the martyrdom of Stephen, had a component to his purposes on establishing his church and furthering his church. None of you, now I'm not saying you've not have. This possibility, you may have had a dream, but none of you have seen Jesus. Anybody want to contend with that? Didn't think so. <laughs> and none of you have been commissioned in the same way of establishing the beginnings of his church and to actually write portions of God's Word. Some of you are good writers. I've read some of the things you are, and some of you are learning to be good writers, and you may have written very good things about God, but none of you are going to be adding any particular chapters to the Word of God. Paul had a special commission by Jesus Christ, and this particular moment is establishing that fact. It's a very crucial part. In fact, it should be more so primary for us in our focus than even our own application of our own conversion with the story, is that we need to be reassured by this particular narrative. And the reason why it's repeated over and over again is that it's to be rooted in our mind, and Paul has to point back to it, because you have to think about where Paul is coming from. He was a persecutor of the church, that he is an apostle. He has been given unique, extraordinary, special authority to be those who are instructing the church in the way that he is. Now this is contended today. This is something a lot of people, I know people that are proclaiming to be Christians, that go to church, that proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, who are very zealous for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, who discount the authority of Paul in his teachings. Now you can see why, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go through the passage, you can see why because his message today, which is ultimately Jesus Christ's message, is not a very welcoming message to our culture today. And so there's a lot of motivation for people to discount his apostleship, there was question about it then, and people were wanting to argue about that then, both of Jews and Gentiles. And there were peop- There are people today, and I would say that whether people are actually directly thinking about it theologically and doctrinally, a lot of people want to discount the teachings of the Apostle Paul because it's not a welcoming thing in our society. It contrasts the things that our society is wanting to embrace. And for those people who, through some path in their journey of wanting to remain in a place where they call themselves Christian, but at the same time they want to embrace this woke society, they are coming to a place of deception and lies and confusion and lostness and faithlessness to actually reject Jesus Christ because of their rejection of this very primary thing that is introduced to us in this particular passage. So I'm prayerful, and I pray that you would read this passage again and again, read the other comparison passage, and hear today in the proclamation of the word that this is something that was established and sealed in The history of our scripture that Paul is an apostle and the things that God is going to do in his life and the things that he is going to have Paul write that will be considered to be God's word is true and applicable to this day. You will need to have this truth embedded in your heart and mind in this society because I think it will increase to be a questionable thing, as people like to proclaim themselves of Jesus as they proclaim a doctrine that is in the opposition of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So first we see here that Paul, still breathing threats and murder, right off the bat, we see that, that Paul... I've heard it, one commentator say it was like a breathing dragon, a breathing fire against the church. This is to purposely put in in that way to so sow the dramatic effect that, that this wasn't just a particular person who was, you know, just nominal character in this particular narrative. This is a chief persecutor of the church. This is following the same theme that we see that Luke is doing as Jesus is overtaking all of his enemies. We see him overtaking Satan himself by taking Simon the magician and taking those who are following him and nullifying the message of Simon the magician. We see the theme being continued by Jesus opening the doors and becoming the king of the outcast, bringing the Outcast into the kingdom with the story of the Ethiopian eunuch last week. And this is a continuation and a highlighting that at that particular time, as we go back just a couple of narratives to the story of Stephen, that the one who is really in authority and in charge of the execution of, of the disciples of Jesus Christ, namely this deacon, Stephen, as he is proclaiming the gospel. We see Paul later saying on that he actually voted whenever there are those who are put before the council, he is the one who votes against those who are of the way, both men and women. We only have the account of Stephen being shown here, but we know from Paul's own words later on that he is the one who gave authority with his vote. He had a position and a place. You know, when you watch different kinds of crime stories, you, know, you see people who are the hired henchmen of going out and, and doing something. And a lot of times in, you know, like police stories, you'll have somebody who killed somebody. But what the prosecutor truly wants is the one who paid. He wants, he wants, they want to go after the, the guy who's in charge of all of this. Because he's the, the, really the bad guy. They, this, these people who actually might carry it out, they're guilty of murder too, but they're going to get a, a lighter sentence because what we want to do, if you, can, if you would snitch on the really bad guy, because that's the guy we really want. Well, Paul was the real bad guy. He was the one voting for this to happen. He had the authority to say, no, 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 let's not do this. So when Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and when here, when Luke is saying that he was breathing threats and murder, that it wasn't just some rambling, screaming guy, that his authority, his power, everything that he had in him was promoting him, as Paul uses the word fury, against the disciples of the Lord. God had ordained Paul to be in a particular place as a display of his might. He is, being, he is putting out before us showing that even the one who is like a dragon against the church is going to convert to my service. I will hijack hell itself for the purposes, the furthering of my kingdom. Here we have Paul going to the high priest. It's important for us to look at what's going on here in this particular act of him going to the high priest. And he's asking for the letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, which is a, was a common calling of... It would be the how it was known that those who followed Jesus' word and saying that he was the way, they called themselves that and they were known to that, that they were of the way... Men and women. And you see this multiple times. And it's a very important thing, both in the negative and in the positive. Here in the persecution of the church, Paul was going after men and women. It was a very heinous thing. He wasn't just going after the men. He was going also after the weaker or those who were considered to be the weaker, the women. Which is in contrast to what we see going on in the furthering of the kingdom in Acts as both men and women are taking a greater participation in the worship of the Lord. And so it's purposely put there for us to see the nature of what Saul is doing. But he is seeking for authority. This shows you what kind of character that Saul was, is that he saw himself as an authority, but he was also seeking authority. He wasn't being appointed initially by the authority to do this, that he had so much fury against the church, so much zealousness for what he thought was of the way of God that he was seeking to get the letters. He was, he was reaching out for what he thought would be the authority to go after the Christians. He was in a hurry. He was, he was anxious to be able to get to a place where he could capture as many Christians as he could. So that mindset that Paul had, and I'll go back and forth from saying Saul and Paul, and I have to ask you to forgive me, but Saul, again, just as a reminder, is his Jewish name, and Paul is his Roman name, his Greek name. And so that's why you have the distinction in Acts because it depends upon where we're at in the narrative. It doesn't have anything to do with the transition of how he was renamed. It's just a different application based upon the audience and the he's being received from. So here we're still recognizing him as Saul. But we see here that Saul recognized the need for authority. He wanted to be able to be in submission to what he thought was the powerful authority of that day. And he was acting on that and longing for that. So it was both personal to him, but he was very zealous for it, but it was also very structural for him because he wanted to have that authority to do these particular things. Because again, he was not only a chief persecutor, he was a chief Pharisee of those of that particular day. Maybe the best of the Pharisees, the way he even considered himself. In verse 3, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. That light was an amazing light. Just as a quick side reference, as we look at the other parallel accounts, that it was, in, it was during the midday, it was noon, and it was so bright that it was brighter than the sun itself. Now, usually noon is the brightest part of the day, but this light was more powerful than that, that it was blinding. It wasn't just the light that was blinding him, but it was a component of that, that he was seeing something from heaven, it says, shown around him. It's important to look, as you just fast forward a few verses there, the people who were standing with him did not see that light. They did not see that manifestation of Jesus Christ. And that's an important distinction to think about, that Saul Saul the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Those standing right next to them heard the proclamations in the conversation, but they did not see. As you will see noted there in that very paragraph that those standing by him did not see it. So he sees this light. He is seeing Jesus. In falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me now, just isolating this particular question and this particular sentence in by itself, you may say, "Well, yeah, yeah, it, that can it makes sense." You know, this is Jesus saying, "Hey, Saul, Saul." Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my people? There's a lot more power behind what is being proclaimed here. Fifteen different times throughout the scriptures do you see the repetition of names like that. And it's always in some kind of highlighted sense. And in most cases, it's God talking to people. We see it with Abraham right before he kills Isaac. We see it with Moses on Mount Sinai. We see it In multiple places, Jesus with Martha, Martha, Martha. It's a very elevated introduction and greeting from God. It's not the only time. There's also other times where people are saying it, but it's a very serious proclamation. It's not just saying, hey, Saul. You see, later on, we see the Spirit talking to Ananias, and you just see Ananias said one time. There's something very important here to be reminded for Paul, Saul, and reminding us that this is a special moment of calling for Saul when he says Saul Saul and he says why are you persecuting me now we know as far as we can tell that Jesus never laid a, I mean excuse me Saul never laid a hand on Jesus and like he never saw him before I don't know. We don't know the fullness of the story. Maybe you got a glimpse of him as he's going through Jerusalem here or there. But there's that is telling you and telling us and telling him something very much that the people that he is persecuting they are Jesus. Now just tapping in a little bit to the part that it is applicable to us in this particular narrative is that we need to remember that we are Jesus. Now, we may need to question ourselves. Are we Jesus? Here and now, as Jesus in body and flesh is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, are we Jesus to such the proclamation that Jesus is saying that we are, that his church is, that that his disciples are, Are we Jesus? Do you, when you wake up in the morning or when you go to bed at night, do you think, I am am Jesus. Now, you can see how this could get really weird. There are people who might think that in a certain way that's very egocentric in a wrong way. But do you think about your particular part in the church, your particular part in the body of Christ, as being Jesus. Now, you individually alone are not Jesus. His body is Jesus. Stephen, by himself, was not just Jesus. His component in being a part of the church and the disciples in the kingdom of God made him a component of being Jesus. Do we approach our part in the kingdom, do we approach our particular congregation and our particular callings in this world? Do we look at that as being a component of being Jesus to the world? Here, Jesus is saying, I am, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul says, who are you, Lord? Just to highlight, when he says, Lord, the use here in the Greek, is a divine understanding. It wasn't just a earthly understanding of Lord, which was a common way to reference someone else, is to look at someone as being your Lord, being someone who is maybe of greater earthly authority. When he said, who are you, Lord? He was recognizing that there was deity in front of him. And then Jesus says again, I am Jesus, whom you are, persecuting. When he says that, again, combining not only that his disciples are who he is, but it is his persecuted and suffering disciples. It's important for us to see in the narrative how that is the case, that he references that his people are who he is, that his name is on them, that he is actually being manifested in and through them by their persecution, by their suffering. That suffering is a part of what defines his people. Now, you might be thinking earlier on when I was asking, do you call yourself Jesus? Do you see yourself as a part of the body of Christ as being Jesus But then the Christian church today needs to to come to grips with, are they the persecuted Jesus? Are they the suffering Jesus? This plays in alongside of this part of where we are today with, people don't want to suffer by being rejected in this culture. And so what we want to do is, we want to reject Jesus' teaching so that we won't have to be those who suffer through rejection. Have you been rejected? Have you had to endure suffering? Are you facing some type of persecution in your life because your life, both in word and deed, and how you think, because of what Jesus has done, it contrasts the kingdom of hell. Does, it, does your life reflect Jesus? Or do you spend a lot of time in your life trying to make your proclamation of who Jesus is comforting in this society? I think a lot of Christians today are tempted to try to find ways to make the controversial proclamations of Jesus sound really Nice to people. Alathea and I were at lunch this week in Asheville, and we went to a Japanese restaurant. We're in a kind of a special celebration that I do with my girls when they become 12 or 13, and we were sitting with other people. If you go to the Japanese steakhouse where they cook in front of you, she'd never been anything like that before, and so wanted to give her a whole theatrical scene of that. And when we got there, there were three other people sitting there, and from what we can gather was... Um, maybe a, a lady in her older twenties sitting next to her mom, and then maybe um, next to her stepfather, um, and she was very loud person and had a lot to say and and it was almost lady and I did not discuss it while we were sitting there. We got in the car and i 'm like, "Did you catch all that stuff that was being said there and she She had a loud presentation physically and a very loud presentation in her words. And she started, I'm not going to go into the details, but she started going through a narrative about a particular relative that she was just appalled by. Because I think it was a nephew or a cousin or someone that was a child, that's a child in that home during the, the COVID crisis was d- doing school through Zoom. And the teacher did something, introduced her partner, called her 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 wife, in front of the whole class. And when the parents found out about that, the parents took him out of school and put him into a Christian school. Now, she had prefaced this particular story with just how Christianity has just become not interesting to her, that she was just appalled by Christianity. And this was her example story, and she was just horrified that these parents would take this child out of school and said, this poor little child is not going to be able to know how to relate to people and to understand people because they didn't welcome that particular display in front of their child. And then I watched, and I actually think that maybe the parents may have been Jewish. I don't think they were Christians, but even, even they were wanting to be appealing to her. You could tell that they hadn't been with her in a while and they were, they were trying to make that, you know, like, you could tell I think they were convicted that that was a wrong thing to do. But just listening to the man and to the mother, they were trying to, to be apologetic or, or to try to be alongside of the daughter in that thinking that that was a bad thing to do. That people who follow after God, and I think the father even said even Christians shouldn't be that objectionable to such a thing. He was being apologetic, maybe even for Christians, just thinking about what Christians are doing this day. And that's common. That was a very common thing. And I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to think, should I say something, or should I just be quiet and you know, stay out of it? You know, and I, didn't, I, never, I never said anything. I was like, you know, this could go really bad in a lot of different ways. don't know if i really have a place to say something (laughs) i'm I'm kind of stuck thinking this thing through but that's the posture of where the church is today is that we are not wanting to be jesus because it's not comfortable to being jesus there is a persecution parallel there's a suffering parallel to being jesus let's continue so jesus said but rise and enter the city and you will be told What you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood there speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. This theme and understanding of where Jesus is now saying, I am telling you what to do. I'm going to tell you what to do, but for now, you need to go and do this. Now, just remember, he went to the high priest to get authority to go in one direction. He had his own zealousness and fury pushing him to do what he wanted to do against the church. And just like that, as Jesus encountered Saul his whole authority mindset got changed. It was no longer working off the authority of the high priest. He was no longer working under his own authority. He didn't even have capacity over his own body to be able to even move. At first, he had to be led. Can you see the difference of the strength and the direction that he was going in? Then all of a sudden, he was blinded by Jesus. And Jesus says, now I'm going to tell you what to do, and I'm going to tell you what to do so you can be told what to do. And he tells him to go on into Damascus for further instruction and to wait. And as he is waiting, we see him sitting in the darkness for three days. Three days. I'm sure the words of Stephen came back to his mind. The words that he heard the disciples of Jesus Christ talking about Jesus being in the grave those three days, the three nights, that the reminder, just like Jonah in the belly of a fish, being reminded of what is going on in that moment, doesn't tell us at all, but it's clear from just the narrative that we know that surely that he was thinking about the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he didn't eat, and he didn't drink. And he was praying, it says in the next paragraph. He was in a moment, some even say it was a trance of just dwelling on the reality of what just hit him. His whole world had been turned upside down. Verse 10, it says, now there was a disciple, and you've got to highlight that. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Rewind just a quick bit. Who was Saul going to go persecute? Uh, Jesus. He was persecuting Jesus, and how was he persecuting? Who were the people? Christians. Christians, and what are the Christians called? It says in the very first verse, still breathing threats and murder against the Hoffman? disciples. <laughs> he was going after the disciples, Paul was going after the disciples, and now we are in a story where it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said... Here I am, Lord. Very much again, we can see, you well, know, so that's just a common response. No, it's, I think it's there for a point. God is talking to his people, God is appointing his people for a particular pro- process of, of furthering his kingdom. He's got, they've got orders to go and do what God said. And it said, and the Lord said to him, very much in the same manner, using the same words, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, just as a quick, quick reference, I don't know this house of Judas. I've been, I didn't put a lot of time into it, but in fact, hardly any of my commentaries even make reference to it. Um, This is probably just some other guy named Judas. I don't know if he's a Jew or if he is a disciple or anything. And maybe if you found something that has that information, it'd be very helpful information. From what I can gather, it's not that important, (laughs) but he is in a particular house of Judas whether that was just the name of a place where it was like an inn where a lot of people came and stayed or if it was a particular guy or if it was the first disciple that he encountered, we don't know 100% sure. Uh, it was on a street called Straight and just for your information, that, that road is still there and it's called Straight. And i got a quick picture for you because I just thought it was kind of cool. It, it helps me to just realize this is a, a, a recent picture of, this, of the street called Straight and it's a straight street and it's in Damascus. And they even think where they may think this room exists. This is not just a fairy tale. This is a true story of a true place. And I think if you look at the themes going throughout the book of Acts, you can see God is doing all this work in very rapid fashion, looking at the word immediately in different places. God is overtaking the world known at that time. And here we have Paul getting ready to meet Ananias in Damascus. Now, when Ananias heard this proclamation, he probably twitched a little bit, like, whoa, or flinched. And he says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name you got to think, now, Ananias is a new disciple, or every disciple at that time was a fairly new disciple. We don't know much about what was going on in his life, but we know that he was a disciple. We know that he was a follower of Jesus Christ, and he was a special follower of Jesus Christ. He gets a special commission from Jesus Christ to go to Saul. And then all of a sudden he's like, because at first he's like, here I am, Lord what do you want ready to serve ready to go and then he starts hearing his instructions and he's like whoa i've heard about heard about Saul." it's like can can i get another mission commission somewhere else <laughs> do you realize that this particular saul is the one that has authority. And I get this, that he references the authority. He says, he has the authority from the high priest to bind all the Christians. Referencing the authority, sub-authority of the king, Jesus Christ. Let's go back and think about our place in the narrative here. Where is the church today? When we hear the earthly authorities tell us to do this or that, they don't parallel the proclamation here. Ananias had direct order from the king to go and do this, and how does he respond? He's like, "But the authority Saul has authority. He's been given authority. He's going to hurt people. He's going to hurt me. This is going to hurt." the The authorities have spoken. Do you really want me to go in contrast what the authority is telling Saul to do right now? That may cost me my life. And so, just as you have here in verse 13, it says, But Ananias answered the Lord. We quickly have verse 15. It said, But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That he is saying that I am going to use this one, this chief persecutor to carry my authority. That's when he says, remember, whenever you hear the words, the name of God, or the name of Jesus Christ, you need to associate that not just with the name of what he was called, but it is the power and the authority of Jesus Christ that Paul, Saul, is going to carry the name and the authority by the name and the authority, by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. He is going to proclaim the power and the authority of Jesus Christ before all of these authorities, before the Gentiles, before kings, and before... Yes, the children of Israel, the high priest. He's going to proclaim these things. My authority trumps all of these authorities. And I'm going to use this one as an instrument, as a tool, a chosen tool. He is my tool. He is under my authority to do this thing before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now we could look at that as being like, okay, well, see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show him he's been causing my people to suffer. Well, I'm going to make him suffer. No. He's I'm going to make him a disciple. I'm going to make him a part of me. Remember, it is me that is being persecuted. It is me who is suffering. He is going to suffer for me. He is going to become a part of me. And I'm going to show him how much he is going to be, how very much he's going to be a part of me. So Ananias departed, verse 17, and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, let's do this in slow motion. Let's just back up again (laughs) before we say this. Paul has fury against the Christians. He hates the Christians. He despises the Christian. He's maybe the chief hater of the Christians. Ananias has the audacity before Jesus Christ himself to question the command of Jesus because of his fear of this man. He is very afraid of this man. He's very afraid of this earthly authority that he thinks has some kind of power over him, so much that he is willing to immediately question the King of Kings in his commission. He's like, Do you realize that that's dangerous? He's remembering what he's done to Stephen, what he's done maybe to other Christians. And you've got to think Ananias is not very warm-hearted towards Saul. But Jesus has come to Saul, and he's come to Ananias. He's come to these very contrasting people in very contrasting situations, and he's going to display in this very moment right here the power of the cross when Ananias, the one who was and going to be a target of Saul, is now ministering with authority the laying on of hands of Saul. And he says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. That the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the proclamation and the command of Jesus Christ overcame Ananias' fear and potentially hatred and maybe even malice toward Saul. And here is Saul, who was full of fury and full of hate, having the one that he wanted to get killed, is now coming to him, and he is having to submit to the Lord and submit to having the hands of this man laid on him. And the words that he hears from this man are, brother Saul. Brothers and sisters, that is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel that we do get to participate in today. The reconciling power of the cross, the hostility being torn down, that these two worlds came together and brother Saul was how it was the first introduction given. As these two brothers commissioned by the king are now coming together, for the furthering of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. (laughs) We just celebrated Thanksgiving. We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. Thanking God for what he's done for us and now thanking God and celebrating the fact that he's brought his son. And what do you hear people talk about when they get together at the table? (laughs) Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. (laughs) It can get nasty when you get with these relatives that you don't like, <laughs> just, try to, just try to get through the moment. <laughs> it's kind of like me and like, You know, I just want to have a nice lunch with my daughter here. I don't want to get in a fight with these people. Let's just be quiet. But the reconciling power, the reason why we are celebrating Jesus Christ is because he has power over that division. He has power over our hostility from God's wrath and our division from God, and he has power over the brokenness of our relationships on this earth. This was a very broken relationship. The man who wants to kill you is now the person that you have to go, and you have to commission him now to serve the kingdom. And Ananias did well. He understood the power of the love of Jesus Christ And he said, Brother Saul. And that division was broken down. And it said, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe this is the only place where this is highlighted in the narratives about Paul's conversion that he was going to be filled by the Holy Spirit. This is a continuation of what we see going on in the book of Acts. Now the Spirit has turned Saul into a servant of the kingdom. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. We have in the accounts where Paul is asking, what am I to do? Very much like what you see there in Acts 2, what do we do? We are to repent and be baptized. The other accounts of Saul's conversion says that he did repent and he did get baptized and he became a part of the body of Christ. And then God gave me a softball in the sermon here and it says, in taking food, he was strengthened. I didn't think about this until this morning as I was rereading that passage, probably for the 20th time this week. I thought about Elijah. When Elijah was at a place where he was ready to die, he was wanting God to kill him, he was done. And an angel came to him twice, told him, Get up and eat, rise up and eat. And we see that Elijah had a zeal for the Lord. He was fighting the enemies of God. And I would imagine that Saul knew that story very well. And he may have. It doesn't reference this throughout the New Testament. He probably saw himself very much like Elijah, going out and killing all the false prophets, all the people who were speaking against the Lord. And then here in this moment, it's like, you want to be considered Elijah? Well, now's your time. He has to be given this food to be strengthened. Does anybody remember where Elijah went after that account in 1 Kings 19? You want to go back and read the account? I didn't know. I didn't think about it. I went back and I read it this morning. Does anybody know the direction where Elijah was heading in this very story where the Lord came to him? And he wasn't in the breaking of the rock. He wasn't in the earthquake. He he was in the whispering of the word. And he was told to move on, that there were others out there, that his disciples are out there. Does anybody know where Elijah was going? He was going to Damascus. He was on his way to Damascus. And just as John the Baptist gets to carry out the role of Elijah, God is going to make this man, who may have thought he was Elijah when he was actually persecuting the church, he's going to make him truly in that particular state now, and he is going to give him the food that he needs to carry out the work. That he'll be strengthened in the proclamation. He experienced for himself the power of the gospel by his connection to Ananias. By the time we get to the third account of this in Acts, it doesn't even mention Ananias' name anymore, I don't think. Doesn't even, at least the dialogue is not there anymore. It's now talking about Paul, that he's been commissioned for the purpose of, of proclaiming the gospel and the forgiveness of sins to others. But this is a transitional moment of the gospel being displayed, the true gospel. It's not just the lightning bolt. It's not just the whole power of him being blind and then being given back sight. The thing that's a miracle here is Ananias saying, Brother Saul. And then they eat together to go out in the proclamation of the gospel told you all the story not too long ago that the growing, the, the largest church growth in the world right now is the church in Iran and Afghanistan. They're not the largest churches, but the, the speed and the, the movement of those churches right now is amazing. And one reason why it's growing in Afghanistan is because as the Afghan people are fleeing Afghanistan, they're having to go into Iran. Iran and Afghanistan have hated each other. And what's causing a lot of those refugees to convert is those Iran Christians coming up to these Afghan refugees that usually would hate them. And they're touching them and they're feeding them food and proclaiming the gospel to them. And that power of grace and mercy is transforming the church. And most of them don't even have the fullness of the scriptures like we do or the history where we've grown up in the church. Is the power of the gospel being manifested in your home? Is the power of the gospel being manifested in your marriage? Is the power of the gospel being manifested in your community? Are you ready to not cower to the authorities of the world but to obey the authority of the whole world and the whole heavens and all that exists? And when you come to this table... Do you seek this table? Do you seek this communion to strengthen you in that task? Because that's why it's called communion. That's why it says this body, the blood is what washes us from sin, but he gives us the body to strengthen us in our calling. It's there for purpose. Let us now come in celebration of our risen King.